0: Oh my goodness, Karen Millen, OBE, a complete heroine of mine and someone that has got a special place I know in so many of our hearts. Like all businesses, Karen started up her brand literally from that kitchen table with a £100 and my goodness, she tells the story of building this worldwide empire. But what was very special is how vulnerable Karen was Speaking about the highs, but really the lows of that roller coaster um she went to places within this podcast that I know were very very tough for her but this beautiful combination of her wisdom and insights as she shares this incredible journey and the reflections of what all of this has meant, I know this is going to be a conversation that really sits with you makes you think about things something that will come across will be why do we feel so guilty us women karen's story epitomizes that founder story that ebb and flow that energy the gut instinct and i am so happy to be back talking to the one and only karen millen enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. Hi, I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not On The High Street, at 28, with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up, and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co., I've learnt so much about taking risks, running a business and some extraordinary life lessons along the way, and I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realizations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoy this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's conversation of inspiration. Hi, Karen. What a pleasure it is to speak to you today. I mean, there won't be a woman listening of a certain age who hasn't worn your iconic designs. And I remember your stores being the holy grail of fashion. And I've watched your sort of return effortless, effortlessly, blah, 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 effortlessly. Um, it's a hard word. <laughs> it is a hard word with the Founders Collection. And your story is one of those true entrepreneurial stories. A hundred pound loan to a thousand metres of cotton. And um, I just want to welcome you to
1: Conversations of Inspiration. Well, thank you so much, Holly. What a great introduction. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here talking to you. I cannot wait. And I'd love if that's okay with you.
0: We're going to start right at the beginning. And I'd love to go back to when you were growing up in Maidstone. You were one of four children. Your father, Anthony, was a carpet fitter and your mother, Sheila, was a secretary. Can you tell me, was it a happy home? Lots of happy memories.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just your standard sort of happy home. You know, we had a a good family unit, both parents working really hard. Always a struggle, I guess, to put a meal on the table. Sort of fond memories of just doing kids things, you know. So, yeah, I would say it's pretty average, pretty normal. But one of four? Um, with a very loving one of four. So we were all fighting to, to you yeah. know, be acknowledged or whatever. Or well, more often than not, it was like, it's your turn to do the dishes or your turn to clean the guinea pigs or something like that. You know, there was often scraps going on because mum would be at work and we'd be home from school before, you know, she got back and then there'd be, you know, some fallout and... You know the usual, usual thing in a family <laughs> of four.
0: And I heard you also had beloved caravan holidays. Uh, wh- where did you go on
1: holiday? Goodness me! Well, you have done your research. We like to do our <laughs> research. Absolutely, you're very important to me. Do you know, I don't. Great Yarmouth, those sort of places. I don't know. They were just. Something that we always look forward to. Yeah, Holidays were so different in those days to what they are now. But yeah, I just have really great memories of being involved in, you know, being out in the evenings and and dancing. And although I wasn't, I was always quite shy actually. It was my sister that shone outside of me. She was loved dancing and socializing. I was quite shy, so and reserved. And probably sit in the corner and watch everybody else, really. But I still enjoyed it in my own little way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think holidays
0: have changed, haven't they? They've I think they were far simpler back in the day. Um, more about the family time and the family quality time that you'd spend together, rather than maybe the destination.
1: Yeah, I mean, money was tight. So, you know, just to have a holiday was something that we really looked forward to. Um, you know, these days you might get two or three holidays throughout the year if you're lucky. Yes. But, uh, um, it was just something, yeah, we'd have to save hard or my parents would have to save hard to. And it was never abroad. It was always local. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the caravan parks or holiday camps was our sort of destination, really. You love fashion from a young age and you used to make clothes for your dolls What I love
0: about bringing this up is, if you think about the listeners listening right now, so many founders I have spoken to, I've found this to be astonishing. When you go back to their childhood, it's like the golden thread was created there. And sometimes when we grow up, don't we, we sort of miss it or we can miss it. Mm. Tell me, you were creative from a young age um, making these clothes. Was that the start of
1: the Karen that became? I guess it was without actually realising it. um, I was always interested in fashion from a young age and probably frustrated as well that we couldn't afford the new clothes that, you know, one would like. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where my mum used to come in and play a big part because she would make our clothes for us. Oh, would she? And she also used to like to knit. So she would knit us um, jumpers and sew clothes for us, particularly if we had like a special occasion to go to, like a wedding or something like that. So, you know, I grew up with that being sort of within the household. So it was quite natural for me. But I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say that my mum actually is particularly creative. I think my father was probably the more creative, arty one. Mm -hmm. But my mum, she just, I don't know if she did it out of necessity. I think she liked the actual process of making something. But in terms of design, that's not really her thing. Yeah. So we would wear matching outfits, my sister and I, (laughs) to most (laughs) weddings and occasions or holidays that we had, you know, uh, ahead of us. She would make us some things to wear out for the evenings, which was really sweet. Oh, how lovely. I remember when ponchos were a big thing in the 70s. And um, so she crocheted us ponchos, matching ponchos. Oh my goodness. Uh, So, yeah, I thought they were great. So, yeah, that was really, you know, nice part of growing up, actually. Um, And then I guess out of that, I love playing with my um, Barbie. Well, it wasn't Barbie. Then it was Cindy, actually. Yes, Cindy's. Cindy and Tressie. Yes, Tracy, I remember. hair grew.
0: I yes. Know. Oh, my God. I haven't <laughs> thought of that in <laughs> many years. I know. Well,
1: funnily enough, I was going on eBay the other day to look for some vintage things for um, Goodwood at the weekend. Yes. And I, and I came across a, a site that was selling Pippa's. Do you remember Pippa? I do remember Pippa. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I'd forgotten about yes. her, but yes, Pippa was there too, but Cindy was my my main doll. And my brothers had action men. Yes. We didn't have a Ken. No, that was yeah. So that was the boyfriend. <laughs> and I would actually set scenes up for them. So I'd make little scenes of classrooms or shops or schools or homes. So alongside the clothing that I'd make for them as well, because I couldn't afford to buy all the bits and pieces, I'd make them out of cardboard or whatever. So and um, little books um I made little classroom books if there's schools and things like that. So so I was forever creating little scenes I guess. And how funny we're going to talk at the end of the podcast about your interiors
0: company as well so look at that that's a there it was right in front of you you just didn't realise and at school you also loved painting and decorating and you were told that it wasn't really the career for girls so someone suggested fashion which actually I think when I've heard about Careers chat normally, you know, it's it's, it's normally absolutely out there. Um, but actually, yours was quite accurate. Um, and you left school and you studied fashion at Medway College of Design. Were your parents supportive of you moving into that world of fashion at that age? It potentially was a risk that they might have thought it was a risk? Or-
1: I don't think they saw it as a risk at all. I just think that they were happy that I'd found something that uh, would set me on a journey because... I was the third of my brothers and sisters, and, and neither of the older two actually went on to study. So I was the first, actually, and I think they also saw the creative side of me mm-hmm. and were very happy happy for me to um, go and do this course. And I was lucky enough to be able to get a grant, so it was paid for. Wow! Because we couldn't have afforded it. Yeah. So it worked out really well, and it was my teachers that yeah that said, "You can't be lugging." ladders around outside and doing this that and the other you know have you thought about fashion and I said well no not really and she and they said why not we're going to take you to the end of um year shows at Medway and see what you think so I went along kind of didn't really think too much about it but I absolutely sort of like thought wow you know I didn't know this existed really yes so another um, world almost yeah really it was And then I just thought the next question was, well, do you think I can do that? And they're like, absolutely, you can. Let's put a portfolio together and um, we'll present it to them and you'll have an interview and we'll see, we'll take it from there. And that was it. Had the interview, got in and never looked back. Yeah. I mean, the next part of
0: your story, I just, I love that it was remarkable because you were just 19 years old, fresh out of college. Uh, You Mm -hmm. went on holiday. And you met Kevin, who went on to be your husband and business partner. Might you just do me the honour, and this is the best bit for me, (laughs) of sharing what happened next? Because it started with, as I mentioned earlier on, £100 and 1,000 metres of cotton.
1: Well, that's actually where you've got it wrong. It wasn't oh. 1,000 metres of cotton, it was 100 metres of cotton.
0: Oh, was it? Right. Okay, good. So I was, was thinking, yeah, yeah, well, the that's times a have changed.
1: <laughs> no, no, it was just 100 metres of white cotton. But no, before that, actually, I, I left college and um, being the shy person that I am, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't want to work for anyone else purely because I was so shy. And I really was quite afraid of stepping into another world that I didn't understand. And so I set about making some shirts. I found some striped shirting. I can't even remember where it was now. It was outside someone's store and it was in a box and there was lots of this really nice sea island cotton stripy shirt material. And so I thought, well, I'm going to grab that and I'm going to make some shirts because at the time i just enjoyed making shirts. I don't know why, because they're not the easiest thing to make. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was making them for friends and they were both male and female. And then my mum suggested that, um, why don't I do uh, clothes parties? And actually, I can't remember which way round it was, but I, so this is where the white fabric came in as well. She had mentioned doing clothes parties, but I was like, well, you know, I haven't got enough stuff to, to do a clothes party with. But then we borrowed this £100 and bought some white cotton, and I made a small collection of different pieces that uh, could coordinate with each other. And, um, and that was it. Uh, she invited some friends from her office to our house. And I did a little clothes party at home. And my mum was there sort of presenting it all. And I was modelling it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then one of the guys that she worked with, he had a daughter that came along and she started modelling for me. So as it grew and we extended the parties extended out and progressed into parties like probably two or three a week Uh, she would trot along with me I'd pay her some pocket money kind of thing and uh, we'd model and my mum would do the commentary (laughs) (laughs) I love this scene (laughs) I know it was quite bizarre but um it was quite sweet yes it wasn't just a white collection by then I was able to buy different cloth uh, which I bought from markets and then we found lots of different clearance lines um mainly in the East End of London, actually, which was always great fun rummaging through.
0: I can imagine. I just I I love the picture of your mother commentating on um, like a little cat show walk in your living room. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of years later, you opened your first shop and it was called Q. And I read that you said we were both very young and very hungry Tell me what that was like. So many people listening, you know, they have dreams. We talk about we're probably the worst boss that you could ever have as founders. You know, put youth on your side and there probably is an, a, an off button. I'd love to hear what that first moment of opening that shop and, and how you basically describe it now.
1: <laughs> Chaos. Um, <yeah. laughs> probably. I mean, it's a long time ago. I can't remember everything, but um, it was a tiny shop. Uh, 400 square metres. Is that right? I don't know. Yeah, not, not very good with measurements, but it yeah. wasn't very big. And it was in a very sort of backstreet area of Maidstone, my hometown. We did all the interiors ourselves. So my, my father was helping with the carpentry work, building the changing rooms. And um, it was all quite neutral. And we had these little wicker chairs for people to sit on a little table And I remember actually building in, because at the time, I don't know if you remember, flat screen sort of like music machines were sort of the thing. And we we wanted it to look like it was the thing, but it wasn't. It was like this big bulky thing on the back of the wall. (laughs) (laughs) But it looked great from the front. But that was our music system. And there was like a little room behind the back where I used to um, have a sewing machine and an iron and a button machine and all the things to finish off garments, basically. So that's my hub. I was working there. So when people weren't in the shop, I was behind the scenes. Yeah. And there were times when I had really late nights, like a Friday night, Saturday night, and then the next morning, I'd well, I'd be sort of sleeping in the back. And then if the door opened, I'd get up and sort of like... (laughs) (laughs) sort your hair out and go out to the front yeah I mean it's kind of like working hard playing hard ish I mean but it was it was far more work than it was play to be to be fair I mean it was there wasn't an off button really we would cut all the cloth ourselves we'd take it to outworkers. we'd finish it off we made horrendous mistakes with a lot of it and to start with I was doing a lot of this from my mum's kitchen table Mm -hmm. um, until we actually found, you know, managed to buy ourselves a flat ourselves. But we were still doing using outworkers at the beginning. So it was very, you know, sort of, I don't know, it's just so hands on. (laughs) Yes. Um, Cutting out in the evenings and. um, And selling
0: in the day. yeah. Yeah. Do you think when you when you entered into that, you know, we I suppose nowadays we have a lot of knowledge. But if you want to get the knowledge about starting a business or doing, do you know what I mean? There are, we more celebrate people's journeys, don't we? And you can, but really, I think when you were doing it, there wasn't, you
1: couldn't copy anything. You know, you had naivety on your side. Total naivety. And I think that's what helped us. In a way, that's what helped because we didn't know what we were up against. So we probably did things that we would never do if we knew. But the other thing, the other side of that, yes, we didn't have all of that ability at the touch of you know your fingers to find out and source things so you had to Mm. literally go out and find everything and be found yes Um, and it was it was hard and I think that's why it took us quite some time to actually become established I mean a lot of people think we sprung up overnight we certainly didn't how many years do you think it took well it took us a good 10 years to actually build the foundations of the company I mean by then we'd opened four shops but you know, they they were slow, you know, slowly yeah. opening, yeah. and and we were building the infrastructure behind it and getting the production side of things as as well as we could at that time. You know, it was a, the whole thing was like, um, you know, us doing an apprenticeship, it was we were yes. learning all the way through because we hadn't gone out into the industry to gain any experience. It was literally yeah. me having learned what I had from college, and Kevin not having been in the industry at all. He was bringing the business side of things to the table, yep. which, you know, I knew nothing about. And um I'm not sure that he did, but he he's, <laughs> you know, he had no experience of that either. But I think he's a naturally sort of gifted business type person. So, you know, it worked. The two of us yeah. had the right ingredients to make it work. Two people bringing their own skills in, and
0: the whole is greater than the the sum of its parts. And tell me, what other? If to just get a picture of this time, what other brands were around then? I mean, that's the interesting thing
1: because it was a very different high street to what it became, and I think that's one of the reasons why we succeeded in the way that we have because the timing just seemed right. And of course, we aspired to all the catwalk designers. But really on the high street, there wasn't an awful lot to compete with. But one of the first people that did um, hit the high street at the time when we were embarking on our journey was Next. Okay, yes. And Next was quite revolutionary, really, in the sense that, um, you know, they were delivering collections of clothes that people could understand how to wear because they would coordinate them together. Mm. The other thing that they did so brilliantly at the time was... That whole um, experience of walking inside a store, right down to sort of packaging your your goods and walking out the bag with a, out of the shop with a you know a great carrier bag. So you know it was the attention to detail that they had was actually really quite groundbreaking at the time. So for me, that's that was the first sort of competition, shall we say? Yeah. I, was, I, I didn't see it as competition. I saw it more as someone embarking on you know a similar journey. Um, But other people, I guess, around the time was probably that came soon afterwards, Jigsaw, um, Hobbs and those those kind of brands.
0: Wow. It was a real era. And I remember, do you remember the next catalogue? This was a very big deal in my household. Yeah. When that next catalogue, the the, the cardboard and you'd open it up and Mm. I would spend an evening with my mum. And we'd just go through and you would mark each page. Like it was a complete ceremony, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a really... Yeah. And I can imagine that's... We all should want to almost have people in our industry that might not just be directly competing, but actually for the founders are aspirational because someone else has got a different point of view, yeah. you know, it, it, that you can work off in a way. Tell me, we start the 10 years, four shops, but over the course of the next two decades, you opened a staggering, am I right in saying there's 130 shops in Europe, Asia, Australia, basically world domination, securing a very special place in in our hearts. Yes. What was that like? I mean, four to over 100, how do you do that?
1: Um, <laughs> I guess I was so busy getting on with the design side of things and just the production side of things that way. I didn't really think about it, but I mean, and Kevin was the driving force when it came to the expansion and the business side. Yeah. And I remember him saying, we'll get to 10 stores and then that will be it. And we get to 10 stores and then it was like, well, we'll go for 20. Uh, Because obviously when you get to a certain point, the feasibility is not there. You have to keep going or you have to stay small kind of thing. So you've got to decide where where it works. He being the figure person sort of decided that. And uh, so the journey was not, well, it, it, it sped up, I guess. It was a slow start yes, and a difficult start. All, lots of challenges, particularly for both of us, I think, in the first 10 years. And I think we got probably got a bit of a lucky break towards the end of the 10 years when there was a company called Pierre de Terre. Do you remember them? I your do. company? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, they approached us and wanted to do clothes within their stores in London. Mm. We'd always wanted to go to London, but didn't feel that we were ready to do that. So... We knew it was something that was definitely on the cards, but we had to be ready. Um, And when they approached us, we agreed to doing a small collection within their stores to see how it goes for the year. So we did that and it went really well. Um, And it was a great opportunity for both of us, I think. Um, So at the end of the year, they approached us again and said, look, you know, we'd like to do more, more of our stores. But I think they wanted to take more of us and we were yep. like, hang on a minute. Yeah. We've got our own journey here and maybe this is the point to actually step off and do it ourselves. So we parted company and that was it. And it also came at a time when there was a huge crash within the economy and late 80s, early 90s, and things came sort of tumbling down. So there was lots of stores closing and lots of opportunities for people like us that didn't have huge borrowings because Mm -hmm. prior to that, we found it really difficult to get any funding from the banks. And that was another part of our story that, you know, we tried in our very early days to get funding to expand, but we thought we'd have to give up at one point. And we stumbled across one particular bank manager in a private bank called Akin Hume and he just took us under his wing and said you know I love fashion I love what you're doing I'm going to give you an opportunity and he did and really that was our saving grace. I think it was Jay Blades that said that we have as founders
0: angels people that just come they pop up in our journey and for no particular reason they make the difference Hmm. you know it's like you're dead or alive type of thing. That was one of those moments. That's one of those moments isn't it? Okay, deep breath, because I can't quite believe that today is the day I finally get to share this with you. As a listener of this podcast, I already know you're a passionate believer in following your dreams. So today, I share with you that I have done just that and followed my own dream that I've had for so many years. I'd like to introduce you to the next era of Holly and Co, a small business marketplace. Don't worry, of course, you can still come to us for advice about building a business or inspiration to help you fly. That is, after all, my life's mission. But you can also now experience and shop the colour and creativity of the very best UK small businesses, all in one place. Think of it as the home of small business online, all handpicked and curated by me. Is a treasure trove of unique finds, shining a light on a collective of brilliant founders, or as we like to call them, our co's. The talented co-munity, putting the co into Holly & Co. I've brought together a movement of creators who champion quality, sustainability, and purpose. A marketplace designed to celebrate craftsmanship, handmade products, and finally show you something new something creative and colourful in retail. Oh, and did I mention that over 90% of our Co's are female founders? There's so much more to share, but I'll let you go and step into our new world for yourself. So head over to holly.co when you get a moment and explore. Welcome to the home of small business, Holly & Co. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. I think a couple of very unique things about the business that you built, and I'd love to know more about the process in this because, and correct me if I'm wrong, if other people were necessarily doing this, but you weren't just designing, you were also manufacturing. You were buying the fabrics, you were buying the packaging. Yeah. And which meant that you had a lot of control and i'm i'm presuming that actually meant lower overheads and all, all those sort of or lower costs that you had and maybe allowed you to be more nimble than some of your counterparts but was that quite novel at the time yes i mean it was unheard of
1: pretty much really
0: yes i i thought so i just i i just didn't want to get anything wrong i'm i'm not I, from your industry but it did seem at that stage to have such control and yeah. cutting
1: out this middleman that was what i think was Another point of difference, and the success again uh, the reason behind the success, or one of the reasons uh, the fact that we was doing something that was so so hands on that we had total control of, but of course, with that comes extra work, yes, and even now, going back working within the industry again they don't do it that way anymore. Really? They rely on factories to do everything pretty much, which is a shame because what we had really was like an atelier. Yes. For the high street, which was just unheard of. But it was great because we got to learn and and experience all sides of the business. And it, it just kept it real. It kept it different. And I think that's yeah, why it's so special.
0: Because for those who are listening to you and want to just know a bit more about that, you, what would normally happen is someone would design something, potentially not the founder. It would then go to a factory that competed for price and then you would get it out at the end. Yeah, And the difference here was you were designing mm-hmm. and then what? It was going to
1: your factory. So I would design and then obviously as we grew, we had a small type team of designers that was um, working alongside me and then we would have our own in-house pattern cutters so we would discuss our designs with the pattern cutters they would then produce the patterns from there we would have sample machinists so wow. we'd do samples yes. of what we call a toile in the industry it's like a calico version of you know the garment to make sure that the fit the cut shapes are all all right So that that could go backwards and forwards a little bit until you were happy with it to go to the next stage, which would be the first samples within the factory. And we worked very closely with several factories. And we obviously, as we grew, we had good relationships with them. So they liked doing our work because it was more challenging. Yes. Um, And, you know, we gave them a lot of work. So we always had this fantastic relationship with them and we pushed them. And they would come cu- to a point where you know we'd even buy machines for them to do certain things, right? Yeah. So we did have a really good relationship, and that was again key to, to us having the success that we did because we were able to produce garments at a high quality with lots of attention to detail. So so yeah, it was amazing. And then obviously we'd have the first sample would come back. We'd sit in a meeting, do the fits with that then there would be amendments to do so they go back to the pattern cutters to do the amendments and that might go backwards and forwards a few times we'd go through probably three or four samples before we got to our black seal stage where we'd sign off and say it's ready for production
0: and this would normally be am I right in saying this is this sounds like high-end designers that would do this process but here we're talking about It's going on to the high street. Yeah, and I think that's it. Yeah, that's why we were different. You were giving this experience. Now tell me, that was very intuitive. You know, that that was a decision that uh, I believe that you had a lot of confidence in Kevin's ambition and what he can do. And he had much confidence in what you could do. And that's what made it magical. Mm. You had an instinct to what the woman wanted. This quality on the high street. It fitted you know, it could be washed, all these sorts of things. Do you think that this is the key to, I suppose, the success that you you got her, that you understood her? <laughs>
1: um, well, I'd like to think it was to a certain degree, but at the same time, I think, as we said earlier, you know, there's angels along the way that pop up and help you. And I just think there was just so many different parts of what we were doing that just were right. And, um, the end game was success, so it wasn't any one thing. Mm-hmm. I think it was lots of things, but certainly the fact that we were delivering designer wear really to the high street. Yeah, did I always get it right? Of course, we had things that didn't sell. You know, you don't get everything right, and you learn from your mistakes, but hopefully not too big a mistake. And I only say that just because I, I'm sort of quite obsessed by
0: retail and the high street, and under, you know, and this sort of. Uh, I feel like founders, there's such a magic around founders and Mm. that you knew, you know, of course you got things wrong and collections might, certain things might not have sold, but ultimately you cared. You know, you were designing for your customer. You would, I'm sure you were obsessed by by her. And whereas nowadays I would say what I see on the typical high street is that there is no connection
1: like that. No. No, it's sad, isn't it really? But that is what you hear. um, And that's how it feels. And I think, you know, by the time we came to sell the company, I was definitely feeling that way. I felt like the high street had got to a point where it was confused. It all looked the same. I couldn't see the direction anymore. I just felt like, I don't know, I'd fallen out of love with it as well because of that. Mm. Um, And it was hard because, you know, at that time, you were beginning to see a lot more companies particularly like uh, supermarkets doing Mm. clothing brands and they were you know cutting prices so much more so it becomes very very difficult to compete so I don't know I just it changed. Yeah Um, it certainly did and I can't
0: believe during all of this you were growing this huge international fashion brand but you also just managed to squeeze in three children as well, and one of the questions I'm constantly asked, and I only have one, I have two business babies, or uh, you know, and one and one real baby, and this this juggle and this mother's guilt. And I've interviewed many brilliant women on this podcast, and and everyone's got that different sort of take on it. But what was your experience like? Because I suppose flexible
1: working was not a term <laughs> it, when you were bringing up your babies. No, I mean it was challenging without a doubt. I think mainly because you're so tired, and I think people underestimate how tired you become when you become a mother. So you're trying to hold down your job, and you're also trying to have a, you know, bring up a family. So it is difficult. I mean, we were lucky because by the time we had children, which was probably ten years on after we'd ten eleven years on after we had started we were able to afford some help. So we did have an au pair, yeah. uh, which made things life a lot easier for me. Um, and then we had a, a part-time nanny as well. Yeah. But having said that, you know, when I was at home, they were not there. It was me. So it was juggling sort of like feeling tired, but having to sort of stay focused and give them the quality time that they deserve and that they wanted. So it is hard. I mean, it's probably one of the hardest things us women that have children and work have to face. Yeah, absolutely. And and did you feel that, you know,
0: we, we talk and I try and help people think about the rewiring of guilt versus maybe inspiring your children and uh, watching a woman grow a business as much as a man growing, all these things, you know, Harry, Harry famously said when he was four, whether actually men could run a business because only he thought women could. I was like, wow, that's a moment, <laughs> isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is, and I think times have changed all that because I actually don't feel guilty. And I I don't think I ever really felt that guilty. I think my children have never they've never said they've resented it. Yep. I did they knew no different. They didn't go without. So I don't I don't beat myself up about it at all. Yeah. And they certainly had the privileges that others didn't have mm-hmm. in us both working. So no, the guilt wasn't there for me. And do you think that's because you watched your mum work? Did you you came home from school and there wasn't
0: someone at do you, Yeah, you know, I guess and yet so. and yet money was tight for you. And yeah. and potentially that's the other thing that can happen where maybe we live in a potential age where we allow guilt to come in because we know no different maybe do you see what I mean like there are these different life experiences. I I tend to think women feel guilty anyway, but maybe we've exasperated the sort of this word, it's almost, I love that you say, I, I actually didn't feel guilt. No. I don't feel guilt anymore. And actually, you know, do, you
1: know, do you know what? The other thing, Um, I think I would have been a terrible mother if I'd been at home all the time. <laughs> I just wouldn't have had the patience. Me too. Because I would have wanted to work. I needed to do more than just bring up children. So that was never going to be the case. And, you know, I, like you say, times are different now anyway. And I think most children, younger generation, are used to parents both working. Mm. And I think most people want to don't they
0: (laughs) yeah I think so and I think each to their own whatever choices that they make absolutely your words of wisdom then to someone right now listening who's beating themselves up for not being with the children potentially thinking that it's selfish to have their own ambitions for themselves tell me what you would say
1: to them stop stop it (laughs) Um, I really just don't think you should beat yourself up because I think as long as you give them the quality time when you're with them, then there's no reason to to feel guilty. And as I say, I don't think my children resent me for not being there all of the time. I think they probably had a far happier childhood with me being at work and, and them doing their, you know, things with their nannies or being at school or whatever. So yeah, I just think it's like you say, maybe people just choose to beat themselves up for no real reason. They don't think about it hard enough, but I actually, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't yeah. beat yourself up. And potentially
0: you're a better mother as you're fulfilled. You know, that's the other thing we could say. Exactly, you're happier, aren't
1: you? You're happier,
0: you're more fulfilled. And so you're actually a better human to be around your children rather than potentially frustrated and unfulfilled Mm. um, where your whole world might become the children. That's not actually what you wanted. You wanted your dear children, but it wasn't going to be your entire life. No, Um, exactly. And I think that that's such a conversation and potentially we don't think hard enough. We might just land on guilt and stay there rather than actually thinking, well, if I didn't do this, who would Mm. I be in Mm. in myself? Um, Let me go into 2004, because you and Kevin, um, you were divorced at this stage. I read in a few interviews that you'd sold the business and you lost the right to use your name commercially. And I I bring this up not to bring old wounds or, or hurt or those feelings. I do feel that sometimes the road you you know, you said it took ten years for you to get to that place and people said, Oh, you were an overnight success. And then maybe we don't always hear the other side of really what goes on. You described it like watching your child grow up and leaving home, but with the knowledge, they'd never come back. And I I tend to use the analogy with my first business baby and my second business baby, like they were slightly they were children to me. I love them as As much as my children, um, tell me it was a very painful time for you. It was very difficult for you and your family. And I I believe that you also were a victim of fraud, losing a lot of money and being declared bankrupt and losing your home. I mean, this, Karen, is a huge amount for anyone to go through. How did you get through it?
1: Um, With the support, I think, of family and friends. And I think just being the person that I am, I'm pretty resilient. I've been brought up very well and loved, cared for, and I'm very grounded. And I think having come from nothing, I can appreciate what that is and what that feels like. And I'm able to adapt to other ways of living. And I've had to. Uh, But having said that, you know, you look back and reflect and, you know, you can't have too many regrets. There's certain things I've changed, but really that's what makes you who you are. Um, I'm not going to lie, you know, obviously there's been times when when I've hit rock bottom, but um, I always feel, you know, I always look ahead and stay positive, really. And I think that's a strength that I've always had. um, And it's helped me through a very difficult time.
0: When you went through all of this, were you able to... um were you able to learn the lessons as you were going through it or has it just been in retrospect you know we it's it's actually if i'm honest with you karen there are many women who go through business women and i'm sure you know i won't name them but you must know go through such times of turbulence and actually there is a i don't know if you agree or disagree and and, and do tell me You feel like you can't speak out about it because potentially we're already fighting for that place as being a businesswoman or being viewed as a business serious person and to be respected. And so actually, we've already fought for that to then show weakness or to show um, the war scars. We tend to hold back. We tend to hold that information back, which means there's a whole group of women, I think, business women, who've got these terrible stories, mm. but we don't get to actually hear them.
1: There's probably men as well. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, like you say, um, we don't like to admit to failing, mm-hmm. doing things wrong, especially when you've been successful. So it is a hard thing to come to terms with, but I think it's becoming easier in the sense you're doing what you're doing. And I think that's great. And you are giving women and not just women, uh, men and women, a platform to speak and tell their story and open up. And, and, you know, it's through listening to all these stories that you realise that you're not alone. You know, we all go through these things, but it was a bit of a taboo subject, particularly sort of, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. Mm. Um, There's so much access to knowledge now that we are more open and able to be more open about things. You know, and some people say, oh, don't keep telling people about that. I'm thinking, why not? You know, I'm not embarrassed by it. Of course, it's it's not something that I'm pleased happened, but it happened and I, I can't just tuck it under the carpet and pretend. I've dealt with it and I'm moving on. Mm,
0: absolutely. And I, I think you can turn the pages in the book, can't you? You can't erase what actually happened. No, and you nor just have should to we. learn.
1: Yeah, you learn from them.
0: Tell me about Karen Millen because Karen Millen was struggling too and uh, things didn't necessarily were going right. Boohoo bought the brand in 2019. And I read that you were saddened because the association with fast fashion and If we look back to your story, you've just literally told and you Mm. said that shopping was an art to be enjoyed. And we seem to have lost touch with that experience, which I just cannot agree with you more. Mm. Um, And when you look at the fast fashion industry in 2022, just in the UK alone, it's reported to be worth a staggering £55 billion. Tell me about that and what you think we could do to bring about
1: change in this area and and that experience. It's a hard one, isn't it? Because... The writing was on the wall, even when we sold the company back in 2004, there was talk about things going online and digital shopping. And we'd set up our website ready to do so, although it wasn't transactional at the time. So I hadn't experienced that side of it at all. So it's all very new to me. And I just couldn't get my head around it. I thought, like, why would you want to, (laughs) you know, give up the experience of walking into a store and shopping, trying on things? I just couldn't imagine it. Um, and I thought, I'll never do online shopping. <laughs> uh, fast forward 20 years. And of course, I'm an online shopper <laughs> because, you know, you can find so much, you know, from all across the world. Yes, yes. Uh, um, but of course, you know, having said that, I still do like the experience of shopping. Maybe not just clothes, but I think I think shopping's got to change in the sense of it has to be an experience. I think when you came into our stores, they were an experience and i think that experience has to be expanded perhaps i think people need more from their mm. shopping experience than than they've been given and i think we're going to see change in that in what way do you think uh, well i think you know there's there's things like um food and beverage sort of coming into play and sort of so more destination mm-hmm. where where you can get an experience rather than just walking from one store next to the other and the experience that i got bored of Yes. You know, just the customer service, that type of thing, and feeling that you were actually buying something special and being treated and looked after. And I think that's missing now. Yeah,
0: That experience is
1: definitely missing. Um, And I think maybe, you know, the younger generation haven't really experienced that. And I think that, you know, like everything, things become like a cycle. And I think we will at some point go back to stores being, you know, bricks and mortar and you certainly not in the same way that we, we had them. I mean, it was excessive and, and far too many stores and unnecessary. So the online definitely does work, but I think there's still room for, you know, key stores in certain places mm-hmm. because people need to see a product, particularly if it's a new, new to them. They need to feel it. They need to see the quality. They need to see the fit. They need to, you know, have that experience. And once they buy into a brand, they're very happy to buy it online. And do you think, um, you know, brand being my
0: one of my most favourite subjects, you know, <laughs> there's nothing like, I suppose, the 3D embodiment of a brand. How else, you know, when we go online and it's only online, it's 2D, what is a brand? What is a brand, I would say... Um, without the DNA of a founder with the, the 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 direction the sort of umbilical cord i suppose it's 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 what keeps people different it's what be, keeps things new and exciting but take away that three dness mm. what is brand? do you think that's a very important part of what you're talking about here I
1: think it definitely is yeah um I definitely think that's what's missing and as I say, i'd really love to see some of that come back and I think it will. And what about the younger generation
0: and fashion? And when we talk about the experiences and the change, you know, there you are. I remember Johnny Bowden telling everybody in his um, office, the internet's not going to kick off. Do you know what, yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> like me, really? Yeah, yeah. What is the internet? It's just not going to be a thing. It's just going to be one of those things. So he he laughs about it now. But we we, we look at now the sort of the changes and everything. And we, we look at all, also the environmental side of everything and, and younger generations who appear... To be far more aware of the environment, I mean, ultimately, they're going to have to save the world from everything that we have done. Yeah. And yet, fast fashion and buying the way that they do, you know, I think you've you've said it when I've read in... It contradicts itself. Yeah, it contradicts it. I've read in, <laughs> uh, you said, um, I can't see how they can manufacture good quality clothes for those sort of prices. You know, somebody is suffering or going without People know that, and yet you care about the environment, and yet you buy the five pound item.
1: I think there's always going to be some people that do that, but I think they're in the minority now, or becoming more minoritized. But uh, is that a word? It is now. <laughs> but what is good, and what I am seeing with a lot of the younger generation is they're upcycling and recycling, mm-hmm. and and that's quite innovative in itself. And um, so I think I think they are taking steps towards. Looking after the planet, and um we have to applaud them for that because we have wrecked it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and do you think the brands that are just on fast fashion are going to see their time? Do you think they're part of the cycle? I think they are. I
1: really I hope they are. Yeah. But um yes, like all things, they have their moment and we, we've not got through that yet, unfortunately. But um there will come a time when things will change. It's interesting isn't it? It's quite exciting to think what's the next thing. You know, it's like the whole social media thing, you know, that's gone escalated out of control almost and uh, what's the next thing after this, you know? Because yeah. I don't think it's all a great great thing. There's there's good things about it and there's bad things. And obviously we see so much about mental, you know, well-being and and how social media affects that particularly within the younger generation and I think it's really shocking and I think it needs to be addressed a bit more um, because we are living a world full of smoke and mirrors, really. Mm,
0: mm. Talking about the next thing, your next thing, um, and I'd love to talk about that, homemonger, your love of when we we go back to your story, when the army uh, met not who was it uh, action man action yeah. man was at school and you were actually making the cardboard books while Cindy came in with her caramel and outfit on um you've gone back to what maybe you've always dreamt about having a love of interiors and you've obviously got an amazing eye i love the name by the way that heritage feel um mm. i've gone oh the site is delectable oh, t- thank you t- t- tell me about this and and has it Has it healed some of your wounds, this journey?
1: Um, Well, I set it up um, with my partner now, actually, um, a few years back. And it was really more out of, yeah, passion for interiors, which I've always had. Again, going back to being at school, decorating some of the uh, places uh, on our projects at school, my Family home. I'd decorate the bedroom, the hallway. So I've always had that, and that's probably where the whole "I want to be a painter and decorator" came in. Yes, not really thinking, well, you can do interior design. <laughs> uh, that probably wasn't on their
0: career menu. No, you were lucky. I, fashion was. I know, I know. So
1: anyway, so I, I think they're all much of a as If you if you like one, you like the other, and yeah. you pretty good at one. If you 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 know you're good at the other, because they're very similar in terms of you know textiles, fabric, colour, proportion. So it's a natural thing. And when we sold the company in 2004, I was exhausted by it, um, the industry. And so I threw myself into interiors. So I didn't even pick up a magazine on fashion. It was just all interior magazines. Yeah. And I started doing a few, well, I did, I sort of renovated my home and then I bought a, plat, a, a flat in London um, and completely renovated that and and then through those renovations i had friends of friends saying oh wow can you do this for me can do-? so i did a few sort of private client projects interior stuff and uh, but realized they were really difficult to work with <laughs> <laughs> there you were used
0: to having thousands of clients you know hundreds of thousands of clients and then you were dealing with one you
1: know that must have been yeah, and you know it's hard because they wouldn't make their mind up or you know it it's hard You're sort of yes it's very personal isn't it your yes. home is very personal and um half the time they don't know what they want and if you put it you give it to them they're still not sure so um <laughs> but I think for me what was missing was I still love retail and that part of it was what I love rather than actually doing the interior designer I'm happy to do it sort of in my own projects because I've got no one to answer to yes um but anyway so I I'd always kind of like the idea of doing homeware and sort of I don't know over the years sort of Thought, talked about it, thought about it and never really, with, with everything else that was going on with stuff that I was trying to deal with, mm. it didn't really happen. And then finally with my partner now, he invested some money into to me buying some things to build an online business, which wasn't again, supposed to be an online business really. It was more, I wanted this whole experience. I wanted to create something that people would come to and you know, just say, wow, I love this. I I love the vibe. They can get a coffee, they can get some lunch or some breakfast. Uh, because he's part Australian or lived in Australia, I've got used to that breakfast culture yes. and uh, um, they do it so well. And I just thought, you know, we just need a bit of that here and, you know, throw that in the mix with some homeware, uh, which I would source and, and curate. And I love doing that side of it. Um Bali was always uh, one of my favourite places to go. I went there um, many years ago and fell in love with it. And then when I sort of met Ben, my partner now, Bali's like an easy trip for them. So we went s- several times and I just said, look, I've got a, you know, we've got a b- source from here because it's just not available back home. And um, so we put some containers together and, and yeah, that was it. Homemonger was born and it sadly has just become an online uh, store not not the real thing because again it's it's hard. I mean we had COVID mm. and then we had all the challenges of all of the shipping containers got ridiculous. Um, so it's been a struggle, I have to say. It's been more of a hobby yeah. than a business, um, but it's been fun and I do love it. Yeah, yeah. It's something that I've always enjoyed doing. <laughs>
0: Every week, I hand this part of the podcast over to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Regular listeners will know I'm dedicated to supporting women building businesses that allow them to do what they love and love what they do. That's why at Holly & Co., we work with Dell Technologies as our lead partner with their fabulous Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, or DWEN as it's better known, dedicated to empowering women at all stages of their small business journey. Dwen provides a wealth of resources, including their active members community, their inspiring online Empower Hour sessions, in-person events, and much more. We know that we're in a time when many small businesses are facing increasing pressures. And in these challenging times, Dwen offers a supportive and uplifting community of female founders across the globe. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Do you think being able to put your focus into something new at that time you were going through so much helped you? You know, I, I feel sometimes like, and I've said this on this podcast before, that You know, your businesses can be a life raft through personal tragedy, illness, Mm. you know, all those sorts of things. Would you say that that was maybe the journey that you were on with it?
1: I think it probably was, actually. When I reflect back, I'd come to the end of everything that I was dealing with and felt I had to do something. Obviously, the use of my name was difficult. So anybody that wanted to do a collaboration and use my name was like, no, no. So, yeah, I I needed a purpose and I guess that seemed like the obvious choice, Uh, something different. I I thought at the time, perhaps I I shouldn't go back into fashion, you know, I've done that, move on, do something else. Mm. But um, during that time, I have got itchy feet and sort of like, I just think I can do a bit more with fashion. (laughs) And I was going to, that's my next
0: question. You know, you have done it again with the Founders Collection, This beautiful collection of kimono dresses leather trousers crisp shirts we go back to the shirts again Mm. um how did it come about and how did it feel to be returning to the brand that bears your name
1: yeah it's been great actually i was very apprehensive i can imagine as you said earlier the company was sold to the Boohoo Group in 2019. At that point, I was like pretty devastated because I knew that they would close all the stores and I felt like, okay, that's the legacy gone. You know, something that we'd spent all those years building and creating, suddenly it will disappear and will become, you know, lost. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt really sad. And then, of course, some of the people I knew in the industry were connected, you know, had connections within the company and and saying, you know, they'd like to talk to you. Are you interested? And I'm like, well, not really. It's not really gone in the direction I'd like to have taken it. And this went on for a few years and then it cropped up again. And I suppose I got to a point where I was like, you know, I really I really want to do something in fashion. But it would be very difficult for me to do something without my name or yes. it just seemed like the obvious thing to do so I just sort of said look okay I'll meet I'll meet with them and we'll chat and see what happens and I met and uh, we got on really well and they said all the right things and um they put a proposal together and that was it really we agreed and um I put together a 30-piece collection that launched in May this year. And how's it felt? It was Uh, Mixed emotions in the sense of, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect when I walked in there for the first time. I I didn't know how I'd be received Received, by all the other, yeah, the guys that were working there. So it was an odd feeling um, and quite a different experience because, you know, it is um they don't work in the same way that yes. I'm used to working. So I had to get uh, used to different disciplines, really. So took a little bit of adjusting and adapting and getting to know people. But they were really very kind to me and very sweet and um, made me feel totally at home. And it all fell back into place quite easily. Um, and I loved it. And I loved, you know, just soaking up being in London in the hub of it all and just the experience. And yeah, it just um ignited the fire within me I think that's been burning away saying you know you've got to go again you've got to do something you know you've got something else to give well I read that you
0: said you felt that you'd retired too early do you think that that's what it's (laughs) cemented for you do you think that you've it's ignited fashion again in you
1: definitely yeah I did I mean at the time when you're 20 years working to a degree that we worked having your children and going through a split, you know it was terribly telling on yes. on a you know on a person, and I was exhausted, and I felt at the time that, yeah, you know, I'll retire, why wouldn't I yeah I've got plenty of things I want to do, and it didn't feel that I was too young then but in reflection as time went on I just look back and I think that was the worst thing probably that's crazy why why would you think that you'd just give up you know (laughs) Um, and I wish I'd probably done a bit more but you know as i said i don't like to have regrets really yeah and i also saw that you said um you
0: know you don't like to play golf it's what i say you know i'm i'm literally the the thought of retirement actually when you you think about it and and unless you do your hobbies but really what is there you know, except for maybe igniting your passions again and doing it maybe in different degrees. You're not going to be opening up 130 store. you know, all those no. sorts of things. Nope, that's definitely off the cards. <laughs> um, Can I ask you a question? Are you proud of yourself, of what you've built? Mm. Do you recognise what you've done for us women? Do you recognise what you did to the high street? Do you recognise those things? Or uh, I, I'd love to know, because I think, again for us women? And, you know, potentially we, we don't really know our own impact.
1: I think that's a very good question. And it's something that if you'd asked me when we sold the company 20 odd years ago, I would have said, no, not really. I didn't feel particularly, yes, of course we'd succeeded and that was great. Uh, but it's taken a long time for me to actually reflect back and actually think, wow. I mean, people would have told me from time to time, you know, that's amazing what you created. I don't know. It's only recently really that I've actually reflected back and, and I think it's through time actually that it has stood the test of time. And in fact, now it's almost become fashionable again. You know, yes, they're celebrating sort of like 80s and 90s and that was our era. So <laughs> we are back on trend. And I so I feel like, yeah, I've, you know, we did create a piece of, you know, fashion history, high street history, Mm -hmm. um, that despite not being on the high street, um, the name does live on and it stays in the history books as Mm -hmm. something that um, changed the face of the high street and fashion. Yeah. So I am proud of it, yes. And, you know, I think more so where I've probably been um, sort of in people's face a bit more or in the ears having done the founder collection you know I'm hearing a lot more people come to me or you know social media or whatever and saying oh my god I remember this and sending me photographs of things and and exploring their wardrobes and the great thing is that you know most of them have you know got children of their own that are now wearing their wardrobe and you know it's all this is really cool mum you know so so it's a really nice thing to be able to see that the clothes have lasted that time and I'll be handed down generation after generation and um yes yeah, so I am yeah immensely proud of that actually and I'm
0: really really pleased that you've come to that realization as well because you are for us business women and for women you're you're an icon and that is Absolutely what we believe you are, and it's you've been part of our lives for for so long, my whole life basically you've been you've been there. Tell me, I'm coming towards the end of this podcast, and I always use this analogy, and you've had some ups and downs in your journey for sure. if we were on this entrepreneurial roller coaster, what would you say when you reflect back has been one of
1: your biggest lows whilst on the journey um well, obviously, sort of losing everything, which is, you couldn't get much lower than that, I guess, um, has to be sort of the lowest point. Although that's not on my journey of building the business. So I don't know if that accounts yeah. for anything. Oh, but, it does. Um, I, I mean, would say that's obviously, without doubt, got to be one of the, the low parts of my life. Did it affect your fat? I can imagine it affect
0: your whole structure as well. So not only were you trying to pick up your own pieces, but you were also a mother lion
1: protecting your young yes exactly that's exactly it so you just sort of try to stay as stoic as you can and be that person to head up the family and just say you know we march on this is okay and they were incredibly brave and tell me conversely what would you say your greatest high was oh I think when I reflect back the whole journey was a high because there were so many highs within it um it was a happy place to work and grow. Um, We saw so much, did so much, and we were such a family unit that grew together. Um, And I love catching up with some of the people that works with us and hearing stories and reflecting back on the whole journey. So, you know, the whole thing was great, but there is one particular thing that sticks in my mind that, you know, people often ask me, you know, what's it feel like to see your name above all these stores? And, you know, it never really... I never used to feel that much because they were such a gradual thing. It was a part of a big company as far as I was yeah. concerned by then. But the one time when it did actually put a big smile on my face was um, when I was driving down a motorway one day and coming in the other direction, I saw this huge turquoise lorry with an orange dot on it with my name on it. It was like a big carrier bag. Our carrier bags used to be yes. that colour. And I just thought, wow. That's pretty cool. We had a fleet of them, about um, four or five lorries um, that delivered because we did, aside of all the other things that we talked about earlier as to what we did, we actually distributed all of our goods as well. So we stored them in the warehouse oh and distributed goodness. them. So,
0: yes. Gosh, you you really did do it completely differently. It's completely inspirational and for not only for anyone listening without a business because you're just an icon and our female uh, worlds, but for anyone with a business, I mean the fact, the, the 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 way you looked at things differently so many years ago, and how you dared to be different, and look what that built is just. Uh, amazing and I can't thank you enough for speaking to us today. I know that everyone listening knows what's about to come up. It's a moment where I'm going to hand over the podcast mic to yourself and I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of ourselves and the listeners for sharing a piece of soul with us today, Karen.
1: Thank you, Holly. It's been my pleasure. Over to you. Okay, I'm going to have a drink. Have a drink. Dear Karen, you could never imagine what lays ahead of you. What you will achieve from humble beginnings is really quite extraordinary. Nevertheless, with the highs will come the lows. You'll make some big mistakes, but that's okay. You learn to live with them because without the mistakes, you may not be the person you are today. They are part of the narrative that creates our story. You will become stronger, enriched, considered, more appreciative, And this experience will help guide you in the right direction going forward. A few key points before I start. Never underestimate yourself. Don't be afraid to ask if you don't understand. Keep a diary, your memory is shocking. Push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Be respectful. Don't isolate yourself. Remember, no one's perfect. Be more aware. Learn to laugh at yourself more. Treat people in the way in which you want to be treated. Learn to challenge yourself. Don't put things off. Give back. Don't be afraid to voice your opinion. Be kind and considered and stay true to yourself. As you're about to embark on your life's journey, I just want to tell you that you have been blessed in so many ways. But, my dear self, you are incredibly strong. You have a loving family who are always there to support you and have given you the tools to understand life, to be a good person, to work hard, stay true to yourself, to value life, and never take anything for granted. But you do have to take responsibility for your actions. Remember that not everyone is honest and trustworthy, not everyone has your best interests, so be aware. You will learn this the hard way, especially financially. You're soon to meet a man that shares your career journey and together you will build your empire and have three beautiful children. But don't underestimate how exhausting bringing up your children and working full-time to build a business can be. You are both young and achieve so much, but it will come at a cost. That price will be your breakup. But remember, you are young and have achieved so much in your 20 years so your lives begin to drift in different directions. The split was inevitable and it's probably part of the reason you both decided to sell your company soon after, as it reaches a great high and the offer seems too good an opportunity to miss. Despite what should be celebration, you fall into a dark space, trying to come to terms with the loss of both your relationship, your business, your whole purpose in life and the only thing you know. You'll reflect and think how crazy and how sad to have come this far as one, not to be able to share the rewards together. But you know this is the right decision. It will take time for you to find strength and build on your own self-esteem. Financially, the rewards are there, and for a few years you will enjoy the freedom that this wealth has allowed you. You'll indulge in the luxuries most people would just dream about. But I'm pleased your feet have always remained on the ground which turns out to have been critical in dealing with the time ahead. You will be told that financially you will never have to worry again. You are secure, which is a joy to your ears. You were never great with numbers and left that to others. Big, bad mistake, which costs you everything, including your family home. You can be proud of how you managed to cope with this loss and also the effect it will have on your family, in particular your three children who stay completely dignified, despite the huge loss to them too. They remain oh, sorry. They remain strong and give you the reason to ride the storm. You will have the support of great friends and realise that friends are incredibly precious and that as a friend you must value their be- being at all times. During a lengthy period of uncertainty you will meet a new partner, who is kind and considerate. He will help support you during this challenging time. He will be your strength, the light and the distraction you need. He will show you a world away from the chaos and become the respite you need. In time, you will come to terms with the loss and pick up yourself and go again. You have so much more to give and only you can make this happen. Know that you are loved. Know your worth and your strength. You will soon realise that you still have A life to live with new adventures and experience to explore. It's the next chapter. Don't waste it. Love me. (sighs) Thank you for. That's tough for me. (laughs) Thank you very much for sharing.
0: I'm just so deeply sorry that someone like yourself, who's given so much to all of us, went through so fucking much. And, um, yeah it is your next era what can I say well it's been a pleasure we need women like you (laughs) we need women like you you are a beacon to us and please don't ever underestimate that because your name is firmly in our hearts so whatever you do next know you've got the support of all of us and you'll just show them that's what I can say. You will show them. Thank you. And thank you, Karen, for your time and your honesty and your bravery. Thank you. Thank you, Holly.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love.